0: tonight's reading is 1 Thessalonians 217 to 313 But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you for we wanted to come to you certainly I Paul did again and again, but Satan blocked our way for what is our hope? our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials for you know quite well that we are destined to them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labours might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy
1: ones. Well, good evening, everyone. It's so nice to be here with you, and welcome as well if you're joining us online. It would be great if you could see those words from 1 Thessalonians chapters 2 and 3 in front of you, and let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, thank you so much that you're a God who speaks to us. And as we come to look at words from a long, long time ago, we pray that we'd hear them not just as the words of a a man writing years ago, but that we would hear them as your words, living words to us today. Please would you help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Churches are supposed to be marked by love. That's why one of the dominating metaphors in the New Testament is of a church family. And that's why Jesus said that, by this, everyone will know if you're my disciples, if you love one another. Churches are supposed to be marked by love. And so it's tragic when we see that a church lacks love. And all the more tragic when we see that that love doesn't begin at the top. It's appalling when we see church leaders and pastors and small group leaders who don't love and care for those in their churches but rather use and manipulate them for their own gain. Uh, This week we watched on Netflix, and some of you might have seen this, The American Gospel. It's this documentary about the difference between the true gospel and false gospels. And you get to see these so-called pastors standing up in front of stadiums of thousands and thousands of people. And yet behind the scenes, even as they preach to these people, behind the scenes, you see them living the high life, living off their back, taking their money, and just abusing and manipulating them. It's disgusting. You see them flying around the world on their private jet, or rather, one of their private jets, because they have a fleet, of course, living in two hundred dollars a night hotels. It's sickening, because you know, it's all been paid for by the people who go to their church and watch online. When you see people who are in leadership roles who don't genuinely love the people who they pastor and just manipulate and use them, there's something in you that wants to reach into the screen and say, no, no, don't do that. Don't go to that church. Don't be involved there. No one wants to be part of a church that lacks Christian love. But of course, that leaves us asking ourselves a question. And it's a bit awkward with Phil sitting right here in front of me. But how do we know that our pastor, our church leader, loves us. How do we know that? And that's a question that it seems that the Thessalonian church were asking as we read to, turn back to this letter in 1 Thessalonians. We've been working our way through this letter and we've reached the, towards the end of chapter two. You remember, Paul has visited the church for a few weeks. He's planted it there, preached the gospel there, and then he's been forced to flee under persecution. And it seems that some people are saying to the church, look, here is another example of a pastor who does not love their people. He was here for a bit. He accepted the popularity, maybe even accepted your money. And as soon as things got hard, he's left. And he's not coming back. He doesn't care about you. He's not even bothered trying. So why don't you forget all the stuff he's told you? And why don't you go and turn to someone who does really love you? He's just used and manipulated. You don't listen to Paul anymore. And the first half of this letter, 1 Thessalonians, it's been written to try and assure the Thessalonian church not only that they are genuine believers, but that Paul is a genuine pastor who genuinely loves them and cares for them. And so as we navigate a world where there are so-called pastors who don't genuinely love their people, and especially as we live in a time when it's hard for us to see one another more regularly, how do we know that our pastors, small group leaders, how do we know they genuinely love us? But more than that, how can that genuine Christian love not just begin with the church leaders, but how can it come down and affect the whole of our church congregation that we all might live out genuine Christian love? That's what we're gonna be looking at in these verses this evening. We'll look at it under two parts. Firstly, we'll look at the motive of genuine love. We'll see that in chapter two, verses 17 to 20. We'll think about where this love comes from. And then we'll look at the practice of genuine love in chapter three. We'll see three ways that this genuine love works out in practice, how we can identify it and see it. And hopefully all of us will be assured that this church is a place where you are genuinely loved. And we might do that more and more. So let's dive in and have a look in chapter two, verses 17 to 20. And you'll see that Paul begins by expressing his genuine love for the church. Look down at verse 17. It says this: "But, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of that intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. certainly I pulled it again and again, but Satan." blocked our way. In these verses Paul is piling up phrase after phrase after phrase to show how how much effort he's gone to try and go back and visit the church because he loves them. I enjoyed one person who commented on these verses who who wrote, Paul's longing is expressed repeatedly to the point of awkwardness and that was written by an American. Us Brits were long ago we were awkward about that. Just look at all the different phrases. Verse 17, even though they've been separated, he's not stopped thinking about them. Verse 17, he feels an intense longing for them. Verse 17, he's made every effort to see them. Verse 18, not just once, but again and again. In fact, at the end of verse 18, it says Satan blocked our way. It's kind of a military metaphor. It's like Satan has taken weaponized tanks and parked them on the road to stop Paul getting back to Thessalonica to see them. All this goes to show that Paul desperately, desperately wants to see the church. He just can't. He's stuck. Perhaps most strongly of all you see in verse 17, that that word used there, we were orphaned from you. We were orphaned. I mean, that's strong language, isn't it? I mean, there can be few pains so heartbreaking as being ripped apart from a, a child or a parent. That's strong language. It's deep pain coming from deep love. That's how much he cared about this church. But where does that deep love come from? Why does he feel that way about them? We get the answer in verses 19 to 20, and it's all to do with Paul's Christian hope. Just look at verse 19, begins this, for or because, what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory. And joy. Paul cares so deeply about this church because there's an eternal prize that's at stake. When it talks about a, a crown of boasting in which we'll glory, a crown in which we'll glory, the crown is it, it's, it's from the world of athletics. It's the victory crown, it's the prize that the, the victor wins. And it's not surprising that when our eyes are fixed on a prize, it makes us care deeply. One of the things that I've been doing during lockdown is watching a few um, sports documentaries that are on um, Netflix. One of the ones I watched, some of you might have caught this as well, is The Last Dance about the Chicago Bulls basketball team based on Michael Jordan. It's a legendary team that won six NBA championships in the 90s. And the series tracks the final one of these NBA championships, and you see the, the, the highs and the lows of the season. And one of the things that comes across very strongly is just how much Michael Jordan cares about winning. He, he even describes it at one point, it's, it's like an addiction. He can't stop, he just has to win. When he gets on the court, he has to win. And I'm sure if you sat down and, and talked to Michael Jordan and said, why do you care so much? Why do you care so deeply about this game of basketball? because our eyes are fixed on the prize. What's at stake here is a a legendary, record-breaking championship win. That's why I care so much about this game. See, it makes sense that when our eyes are fixed on a prize, we'll care about something deeply. But what is surprising in these verses is what Paul says the prize is. I don't know if you picked this up as we read verses 19 and 20. See, you might have expected him to say, that the prize is heaven. He, he might have said, the prize is the new creation where there'll be no more tears or pain or sadness. But that's not what he says. Or, or you might have expected him to say, the prize is, it's being with Jesus, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That, that's what the prize is. But that's not what he says. And he will say both those things in other places in the New Testament and that they are included here. But that's not what the focus is. Just look at verse 19 and 20 again. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul says, I care about you, Thessalonian church. I love you deeply because you are the prize. You are the prize. When I stand in the presence of Jesus, when I get to heaven, the people I want to be there with me are you. You're the ones I'm going to delight in. I mean, isn't that a beautiful description of Christian love? That we care enough that we want to be in heaven with our brothers and sisters, our church family. It's not just about now, but it's about the future. You get the the distinct sense here that Paul isn't an individualist. His Christian faith is not just about him and Jesus. And his dream of heaven is not sitting in the sun on a sun lounger by a pool, enjoying a cocktail, sipping it for all eternity by himself. No, no, no. He's got more of a leave no one behind type mentality that marks what it is to be in the military, where, where the mark of leadership, the prize to aim for is to leave no one behind. He wants this whole church to be there with him in heaven, enjoying that. That's what he sees as his prize. The thing that I'm hoping for, says Paul, the thing that fills me with joy, the thing that I see as my prize is the thought that I could share eternity with all of you in the presence of Jesus. Of course, this forward-looking, keeping your eyes on the prize mentality is just to follow in the footsteps of Jesus himself. Who wasn't self-interested or individualistic, but had his eyes on the prize all the time. He made a a seemingly impossible journey, not from Athens to Thessalonica, but from heaven down to earth, smashing through satanic roadblocks, even going to the cross, dying and rising again, not for himself only, but so that he could share eternity with the people that he had rescued. That's Christian love. Paul wants to be with them now because he hopes to be with them forever Fixing his eyes on the eternal prize motivates his deep love for the church now. To put it another way, which, which sort of pastor do you want? Which sort of church leader do you want? Which sort of small group leader do you want? One who longs to be with you in heaven, to help you make it there? Or one that doesn't really care? Or what sort of church do we want to be? The sort of church where you want to help one another? make it to heaven and look forward to being in heaven and enjoying heaven with one another in the presence of Jesus, or one where we don't frankly care about what the other people in the church do. Paul's example shows us the difference that lifting our eyes and fixing them on the eternal prize can make. Of seeing our brothers and sisters in the church family as our eternal prize that we get to enjoy forever, the ones who are our joy and crown and glory. Thinking that way provides fuel we need to keep the fires of genuine love burning. Paul cared deeply about the Thessalonian church. He loved them because they were his eternal prize. But of course, all of that could have just been empty words. It's easy for a man to say that as he's a long way away from them and says, I tried to get to you. But that's not all Paul did. In chapter 3, as we move there, we get to see three concrete ways that he showed this genuine love for the people in the church family. And he did all of this without ever actually seeing the Thessalonian church face to face, which may help us as we think about how we can love one another as a church family when it's more difficult to see each other. So let's have a look at these three ways that Paul showed his love for this church. You'll see the first in verses one to five of chapter three. We'll see Paul encouraged the church sacrificially. He tells the story of what happened when he was in Athens, having been forced to flee from Thessalonica. Let's have a look at what he says, verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it, to be, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. for this reason, when I could stand it no longer. I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and that our labors might have been in vain. See when paul wasn 't able to see them face to face, he did the next best thing, which was to send someone else to go see them. He sent Timothy, and the idea of what Timothy 's supposed to do in verse is to encourage and to strengthen them. The idea is that the church would be left in a firm position, standing firm, immovable. If you just wander up Edgeware Road, you'll see that there's lots of um, flats being built there. And if you go on a double-decker bus, you can see over the top of the the fences into what they're doing in the the developments. And as I've gone past a number of times, you, you look down, you see these massive drills that they're using to drill deep down so they can pour loads of concrete into the base of these Flats, so that when the flats are put up, they won't shake, they won't wobble, they'll stand firm. And that's what Timothy's been sent to do to this church. He wants to strengthen and encourage them. He's trying to set them firm. The fear in verse 3 and verse 5 is that the persecution they're facing is going to topple them over. It's going to blow them down. So Timothy comes to strengthen and encourage them. It's unsurprising that he uses words from the Bible to do so. He keeps reminding them that persecution is what God has said would happen. So he has his Bible out and he's telling them that. But I think that the main thing that Paul wants us to see in these verses is that it was a sacrifice for him to send Timothy back. Just look at verse 1. He talks about being left by ourselves. And then he keeps emphasizing how brilliant Timothy is. He's our brother, he's our co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ. And yet Paul has sent him back. And when you know that ever since Paul has arrived in this part of the world, all he's done is face persecution. At Philippi, he's thrown in prison. At Thessalonica, there's a, a mob, and the mob then follow him down to Berea, and he's in this strange city, Athens. And you think, Paul, now's not the time to be sending one of your good guys back. You want to keep them with you, don't you? You want to keep all of your friends around you as much as you can. And Timothy's great for outreach. So why are you sending him back? It's a sacrifice, isn't it, Paul? And yet, Paul cares so deeply about this church, he'll even sacrifice his own comfort, his own security, having a mate around, so that he can find out and strengthen this church. Through Timothy, Paul encourages the church sacrificially. Actually, one of the things that is so wonderful to be part of in our church family here is to see the ways that people have been sacrificially encouraging one another, even when we haven't been able to see each other very easily. It's actually a mark of deep Christian love. Not just talking about pastors preparing sermons, but midweek small groups who meet and gather even after a whole day spent on Zoom. You still join another small group just to encourage people from the Bible. Or turning up to church prayer meetings or Sunday school leaders making videos or people giving money to the Deacon's Fund or hanging out on Zoom with your home group or going for a socially distanced walk in the park with someone who's struggling or sending WhatsApp groups, WhatsApp messages and cards with Bible verses in. Youth group leaders preparing games, musicians helping us to sing the Bible in our homes. We could keep on going way after way after way after way, that the church here has been sacrificially encouraging one another all through lockdown, that is a mark of genuine Christian love. We all know it comes at a cost. We know it's not straightforward, it's not easy. But here Paul shows us that sort of sacrificial encouragement. And that's what we see as we look around our church and be encouraged. That's a good thing. That's a mark of deep Christian love. Keep on going. That's the first way. The second way you'll see in verses 6 to 9, which is that Paul gave thanks for them joyfully. Paul gave thanks for them joyfully. Well, what would Timothy find when he arrived at the church in Thessalonica? How are they coping with the persecution? Are they on the brink of throwing in the towel? Are they angry at Paul? No. Timothy returns to Paul with good news. Look at verse 6 says this, but Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you. Timothy finds that the church is going well. They're they're full of faith in Jesus and they're full of love for one another. And to top it all off, they're not angry at Paul for having left them. They actually have pleasant memories of him. The church isn't floundering, it's flourishing. And there's a wonderful irony, I don't know if you saw it in verse seven, that even though Paul had sent Timothy to encourage them, Who's the one who's encouraged? Oh, it's Paul. He's the one who's encouraged when he hears how the church is doing. He feels revitalized, refreshed by the news of this church. It fills him with joy. Because genuine love rejoices when it sees others flourishing in the faith. As a a first-time parent, you realize that every time your little child makes progress, it leads you to rejoice, If you ever wondered why parents post millions of photos on social media, which lots of us don't really care about, but we see it all the time, photo after photo, it's because they are just overjoyed by how their children are making progress. The first smile, the the first laugh, the first time they roll over when they start calling, every little bit of progress brings joy. When you love someone, their progress brings you joy. But genuine Christian love doesn't only bring joy, it brings thankfulness to God because God is the one who's given that progress. And so that's why verse nine, Paul says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Genuine Christian love not only rejoices, but gives thanks and can't stop giving thanks every time it sees progress. I personally find this sometimes quite easy to forget. You see others making progress. It brings you joy, but then you forget to say thank you to God at the end. I don't know if that's just me. This week, I I tried to sit down and just block out 30 minutes and just pick a few people and thank God specifically for how I've seen them grow and how I see them flourish as Christians at this time. Why not do that this week? You'll find it immensely encouraging for you and it'll fill you with joy as you see what God has been doing. That's the second thing Paul did. He gave thanks for them joyfully. And that then brings us on to the final thing he did. Verses 10 to 13, Paul prayed for them earnestly. Paul prayed for them earnestly. Let's pick it up, verse 10. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your heart so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Do you see how his prayers for the church are frequent? It says night and day. And heartfelt. He describes them as earnest. They're not just wishy-washy, vague prayers. They are earnest prayers for these people. What's he praying for? We'll start working through actually the content of the prayer as we move into the second half of the letter. We'll see that worked out in the second half. But just notice that he's asking that their faith, love, and hope, which he's heard about the church, that those things would keep on growing. Verse 10, it says, supply what is lacking in your faith. Verse 12, your love may increase and overflow. And verse 13, all in preparation for the hope of the Lord Jesus' return. He's praying that their faith hope and love would keep on growing. Now during lockdown my my dad has been growing a vegetable patch in his garden and vegetable patches are quite hard work to grow. You have to do lots of digging and lots of watering and lots of checking and weeding and all those things to help them grow. And there's this wonderful moment where the first of the fruit or vegetables finally appears and it brings you great joy. There's a, a, a little, you can just see a little carrot has just started growing or a little run of bean has started growing. You just see a little thing start growing, but it would be strange if at that point, you then said, great, the work's over. I'll just stop there. No, of course not. You, you keep on going, you keep on watering, you keep on weeding, you keep on doing all the things you've been doing all the way through because you want to help the, the carrot, not just be a weedy little carrot, but a supermarket-sized big carrot that you can eat and enjoy. You don't just want one carrot, you want a whole harvest of carrots. So many carrots, you're giving them away to people because there are so many. And that's what Paul is saying here when he's praying for them. He's saying, I- I've seen your faith, love, and hope, and it's great. It brings me joy, but I want more. I don't just want a, a little weedy bit of faith, love, and hope. I want a supermarket-sized faith, love, and hope. I want it there. I want to see it. So he prays because it comes from God. He prays for their faith, love, and hope to keep on growing. Paul wants to see them so that he can supply what they still need to grow bigger and stronger as Christians and to see them increase and overflow in faith, love and hope. Now, when I joined the staff team here six years ago or so, and I was struck by how regular prayer for individuals is just built into the life of the staff team. That was one of the things that really struck me when I moved from being a regular congregation member to working on the staff. There are various points where individuals are prayed for by name specifically. So over the course of a year, everyone in the church family will be prayed for individually by the staff. And not just general prayers, but specifically that these the people in the church would grow and grow, that all of us would keep on growing in faith, love and hope. Actually, for me, I found that enormously reassuring because sometimes it can find that, that a, a church like ours in the, the centre of, of London can come across very professional. It can be a professional church where things look like they're slick on the outside. And you wonder, is there anything genuine in terms of love behind that? And yet to to hear the staff, and I know it's not just the staff, of course, elders and small group leaders and many at the church prayer meeting, month by month by month, praying for individuals to keep on growing in faith, love, and hope. It's reassuring to see that there's a genuine care behind it. What an encouragement to see a, a church prayer meeting full and seeing people earnestly pray for the growth of others. That's a sign of genuine, deep Christian love. That's the third thing that Paul did. Do you remember the three? He encouraged them sacrificially, he gave thanks to them joyfully, and he prayed for them earnestly. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Well, I hope as you've listened and seen Paul's example, you've been at least a little bit reassured that our church, Christ Church Mayfair, that you are loved, that there's genuine Christian love that's at work all around in our church as we see these things happening. That you're part of a a church where people are longing to be with you in all eternity. They care about your faith and they want you to make it there to the end. And perhaps as you've been listening, you might have thought of ways that you can keep on showing that more and more. And we together as a church can keep on showing that genuine Christian love more and more as we seek to fix our eyes, not just on this present moment, but on our Christian hope of when Jesus comes back and takes us to be with him, where we're all there together and get to enjoy that as our our eternal prize. And I wonder whether you can think of ways that you could encourage someone sacrificially this week, give thanks joyfully for someone this week, or pray earnestly for someone this week, that this Christian love that we've seen here in Paul and ultimately seen in Jesus would keep on flowing out and out and out throughout our whole church family. That would be a wonderful thing to see that growing more and more. Why don't we pray for that now? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who loves us. Thank you that Jesus wasn't individualistic. He wasn't self-interested. But with his eyes set on the prize, he came down from heaven to earth and died for us so that we might be in heaven and enjoy that with him. Please would our church, please would our church leaders and please would each individual member be marked by this same genuine love. Please would you help us to work out ways we can keep on, keep on growing and expressing this love more and more. And we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.